Hello, my name is Larry Lannon, the writer behind the local Fishers Indiana news blog, LarryInFishers.com. I started the blog in January of 2012, and it is still going. Four years after that, in 2016, I started the LarryInFishers.com podcast series featuring guests of local interest. That podcast is still going strong. Now, if you like the podcast and are listening on a platform such as iTunes, I'll just take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. It's time now for the latest LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm at Britain Elementary School in Fishers, and my guest is Audrey Lash. Audrey Lash is a first grade teacher here at New Britain Elementary, and we're here to talk to her mainly because she is the Teacher of the Year for the Hamilton Southeastern School Corporation for this school year of 2022 through 2023, which is, it's hard to believe, coming to an end in a few weeks. But Andre Lash, thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Uh, well, I, I got to ask this question because last year in May, that's when you have the, the, all the staff get together at the end. You have a big confab at the beginning of the school year and at the end of the school year. Mm-hmm. Right? I attended the one at the end of the school year last year, which would be May of, of 22. And it was at that particular event that you were named the Teacher of the Year for the coming school year. What was, what were your emotions, reactions when you heard that news? Well, you know, I was very shocked. Um, I was standing up there with two other great district teachers that just impact the lives of so many. You have an ENL teacher, you have a government teacher that everybody loves and adores, and so I was just humbled and shocked that. Um, I was recognized in such a way. Um, I've only been in this district for four years, so another kind of shocking moment for me was just still feeling like a newbie, especially after COVID, so um, it was a a great surprise. Where were you before here? I was in Noblesville schools, Mm -hmm. and most of my career was there. Very good. Uh, When I posted that story on my blog last year about you being named Teacher of the Year, of course, I have a blog so people can comment on the blog. And I received one comment on that story from somebody who only identified himself as Proud Dad. Sounds like you've read this. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to read it for the audience. He said the following, or he wrote the following. My daughter just finished the year as part of Mrs. Lash's class. She loved having Mrs. Lash. I was very impressed with Mrs. Lash's classroom management and lesson planning. My daughter really grew this year. Thank you, Mrs. Lash. Award well-deserved. I'll close the quote there. Now, I know many teachers, and there are a number of them in my own family. So when you ask them why do they teach, they teach because they get comments from parents like that. For sure. Uh, Do you feel the same way? I do. I mean, those little comments mean everything. I mean, it helps you keep going to know that you're visible and you're seen for what you you wanted to be seen for. So I love that it touched on my classroom management. So the classroom atmosphere into the teaching and growing and learning that we did. Well, uh, for me, first grade, I think, and this is my own opinion, is just a very special time for children, uh, even with full day kindergarten these days. And that's really a relatively new thing. Uh, First grade is still, I think, a very big step for youngsters to, to get into. You know, my twin daughters are 29 years old, (laughs) 
and I can still clearly remember them in first grade. I just remember those days so well. So I guess the question I would ask you right now with that is, as background, explain, number one, why you became a teacher, and number two, why first grade? Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I have a background of educators in my family. Um, the educators in my family were gym teachers and a high school art teacher. My dad was a high school art teacher, um, and I always loved his creativity. And um, my mom is actually a project manager. She was a project manager for Lily. So she the process of how she created things and took them through like a project to fruition, I just loved watching that. And then as a first grader, I um, my teacher said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she says, now you might change it. You might change it. So she tries to put that little, but I was so stubborn then. I was like, I'm not going to change it. I want to be her. So I wrote down, I want to be, you know, a teacher. And uh, I'll never forget that moment because she said, you can change it. You, But I was like, at that moment in first grade, I was like, I'm not going to change that. I want to be Mrs. Jones. So um, that's why I wanted to be a teacher. I've come from that line of it and then just wanting to be like my first grade teacher. You'll appreciate this story. Uh, when my, you know, my first, I'm 71 years old. My first grade teacher was a fairly new teacher, just moved here from Canada at the time. When she retired, remember my family went to see her, and she remembered me. Oh, how's Lawrence? You know, she knew me as Lawrence because uh, they, they call you that. That's, in those days, I went to a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. They always called you by your your given name, the mm-hmm. saint's name or whatever. So they always called me Lawrence, and she remembered me. Do you remember most of your students? I'm sure it's hard to do. You have so many coming in and out. It's amazing that my first grade teacher remembered me. Maybe she just had a great memory. Do you remember most of the kids you had? I think so. I mean, and the thing I love is that legacy. So when I moved from Noblesville to Hamilton Southeastern, that was one of my least favorite teaching years, not because of COVID actually, but in 2019, I didn't have those students that were former students walking past me. And so I missed that legacy of saying, Hey, Mrs. Lash, or I always said, come, I always said second grade hugs are the best because that's the year after me. So you come back and you're still hugging me. And, um, so I think they do. I think I would. And I, I hope that they remember me. So one of my big things that I do at the beginning of the year with parents is I say, um, who was your first grade teacher? And so, I'll, I mean, half of my parents of students can't remember their first grade teacher. And so I always tell parents at the very beginning of the year, my goal is to help your student have memories this year, that the first grade is a core memory for them. How often do you hear back from or get a visit from a student who's older does that happen very often? um not very often okay. you know and i i jumped off facebook there for a while so i think facebook does help teachers kind of stay in touch with students or parents of students so you kind of see that so that was one of the things that got me back onto facebook was i had a student reach out from my former district and say hey i want to talk to you or you know the mom was saying that so just trying to keep in touch. No, oh, Facebook has this good and bad. Point. Yes, <laughs> that's the one good thing is being able to see where your students are now. A lot. Of, I want to move to something else because a lot has been said and, and written about the new class, not a class schedule, the new schedule for students because now the younger students start class earlier and the more advanced grades report later. That was as a result of a lot of academic studies that basically indicated that the older students needed more sleep. So that was 
all, it was always logistically difficult, but it was right. implemented recently. I'm just curious, how did that work out for your students? You know, it's been hard. I mean, I have, my daughter's a second grader here at our school, and my son is ki- almost kindergartner next year. And so, I mean, even today, coming back after a three-day weekend, and we had daylight savings time, I had two laying on their desks this morning. And you kind of just have to give them that little leeway because they're just so tired that they can't they can't learn right then. <laughs> I was going to say, do you add daylight savings time onto all that? Yes, yeah, <laughs> just layer it all. Things on. That's uh, that's it's not easy. And you've already mentioned COVID, but every teacher I know has struggled dealing with with the, being a teacher during the COVID pandemic. Each one expressed to me that, and again, we're adding layers here, yes. added layer of stress upon just the normal stresses of, of being a teacher. People, I don't think generally understand I, I hear about it all the time mm-hmm. but all the different stresses you have normally as a teacher but add all that pandemic layering onto it the, the masking the the remote learning the hybrid you sometimes Even the, yeah the we had to um do different places on recess to play yes. so some of that's been nice this year because we've gotten back to some of that normalcy of getting to have all of the first grades mixed up but it's, there was a lot of layers to it that people don't always know or see. So in general, how have you and your colleagues tried to to deal with COVID when it was at its height? It was a lot of just relying on each other because we were drowning and we were still drowning trying to help each other. But um, it was the little... the little trips to Starbucks to get each other coffee, the all the little things that add up, the words of encouragement, the memes just to make you laugh, just to get you through. I mean, it was the little things. Well, I could see how they could add up to, to help quite a bit in a situation like that. But the, the follow-up to that is that I, I think uh, the, the, the other part of it that people don't appreciate outside of education, I hear about it all the time, how do you think the students and the staff, have, have they fully recovered from COVID at this point? Or are you you're still struggling to catch up? I think we're still struggling. We're still just trying to struggle to figure out what's normal, what's still abnormal, what's how am I going to fix this? How am I going to make it through another day? I mean, like you said, right when COVID's kind of gone, decreased a little bit, then we changed the hours and time. So we're constantly trying to figure out a new problem um, when we're trying to still figure out what's normal and consistent for kids. So um, yeah, it's still... It's still hard. Well, and that bring, maybe at first grade you don't see this as much, but I keep hearing stories that the students are behind, that some of those COVID years just weren't the best teaching environment, learning environment. Are there still students who kind of need a little extra help? What are you finding and what are you hearing from your colleagues I on think, that? Oh, we think we are always going to have students that need help and we're always going to have students that need pushed. It's just um, the culture of learning right now is personalization. So whether COVID was here or not, we're always going to have students that we're filling gaps for. We're always going to have students that we're trying to enrich and accelerate for, and we're trying to personalize it to what they need. So um, it's this constant, what do you need in this subject? And then what do you need in this subject? And so I think that will always be that there despite COVID. Maybe COVID just tried to highlight that more, but it seems about the same. Okay, that that does into something else I've heard so much, and I'd like to hear you talk about this because I've heard so much that every student, I wouldn't say every student, a large number of students learn 
their own way. In other words, maybe one way of instructing doesn't bring right. everybody up. How do you deal with that? Uh, how many how do you, do you have in a class? Um, or, I have 21 this year. So if you have 21 students in the class and you've got 21 different ways to learn, how does a classroom teacher try to deal with that? It's um, a lot of juggling. <laughs> so um, it's less about the 45-minute lecture. So 40, if you think about a 45-minute lecture like a college class, you would be teaching for 45 minutes, and that's all one type of instruction. We don't do that. You minimize it down to one-third. So 15 minutes of instruction. We've even found you know, a TED Talk is 20 minutes. To, uh, adults can't handle more than 20 minutes. So we want it 10 to 15, maybe even 7 seven to eight um, of whole instruction. And then we send them off to be independent so that we can meet personally with one student, which we call conferring, or we can meet with a small group of students to personalize it. If all of, if three kids need the same personalization, that's going to be a small group. So it's not an all day lecture. It's a s- small lecture, then a small group, then a one-on-one. It's a lot of back and forth and trying to meet. It's like ships passing in the night. Oh, let me pull you over and do this and that happens in math, it happens in writing, and it happens in reading. So we're constantly trying to juggle all of those different modes. <laughs> when I think of first grade and lecture, they just don't see <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do have to stand up and talk to your students, but I've been hearing a lot about experiential learning. Yes, that, yeah. That's just a fancy word for they need to experience something, do it, and you right. under your supervision. How important an ingredient is that, particularly in first grade? I think it's so important, and especially after COVID. So kind of going back to that COVID mentality, the thing I've seen in students is their engagement has decreased. So I can be standing up there for seven minutes and maybe lose their attention before that 15-minute break because some of their learning was at home on videos, and I'm maybe not as engaging as a video or maybe the videos weren't engaging, but um, there's a decrease in attention span or how to get their attention. So experiential learning is one of the ways to get their attention in a better way than a lecture because they're touching things, they're seeing things, they're getting to organically learn something when it's right there. Yeah, I have a two-year-old grandson who lives in South Dakota, and what I've noticed is that he watches a lot of videos. And, you know, my, my daughter... His, his mom does try to take care about what he, he gets to see Toy Story. He loves that. But he also <laughs> has to watch something else, you know, that, where he might actually learn something. So that is interesting because even at the age of two, he's already learning some things via video. Yes. Which is a different way to learn than having him in your classroom. Mm-hmm. And it's, they're choosing, I mean, kids now can learn anything they want with YouTube. They have a YouTuber they like, they like learning a certain thing. I like learning about space or I like, so they're now able to choose what they like to learn and they're like, they're choosing who they want to learn it from basically when they're doing a YouTuber or a different show. Um, so to try to get their attention in class, it's like, I need to be as engaging as some of these YouTubers or TV shows. I've got to have the song and dance and the extra. Um, I'm a very big prop person. So when students know me as I've dressed up as a witch for a fairy tale, I dress up for fans as fancy Nancy for a boss battle we do. So some of that song and dance I try to do to just to give them that experience or engagement. <laughs> 
That's an interesting story. So you do dress up sometimes. I you do. use props. That's yes, great. Yeah. That is, Everybody's that is, like, where do you get all those props? And I just kind of collect them throughout them the years. The year. <laughs> yeah. And then they all come together when you need them. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm sure your husband says, what's in that room? Uh, yeah. They're all my props. It's more like, why did you buy that? Because again, it's, you know, all my teacher money, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's amazing how, how teachers, and, and then let me ask you that question, because teachers, don't they buy a lot of their own props? Oh, yeah. Their own materials? Yes. That's yeah. still the case? Oh, yeah, it's still the case. I mean, I could ask for donations, but I mean, with props like a costume or something, I'm needing to buy that myself with measurements and things or just puzzles if I need it right then. And I'm thinking of a really good lesson plan. You want the urgency of that learning takes a lot of our money. So Now, your students have computers, right? They have iPads. They have iPad. Well, they have iPads in the classroom. Yes. How do you use the iPads in a first grade uh, setting? I would say that a lot of us teachers after COVID have kind of decreased that a little bit because we knew that they were on a lot of that um, through COVID, through learning at home. So we've tried to give them more experiential learning than um, iPads, but I'll use it if it helps support the learning. So in math, we're learning a skill and there's an app that I can um, put that skill into and it changes that skill into a, a battle. And so when it changes that experience of I'm not just learning this skill, but I'm doing a battle with it, then <laughs> they love it and they don't realize they're learning or they're like, oh, how do I do this, Mrs. Lash? And then I'm having to pull them over and confer with them. Then they don't realize that personalization is there for them. Um, it might be for writing. So the other day we did, we do, in my class, I do a project called Fairy Tale Lawyers where they have to defend um a villain that they think is worthy of defending. And so they wrote out their scripts, but then we got a dictation app that would type it out for them after they were done because they were a group. They needed to have it typed so that everybody would be able to read it because sometimes in first grade, we can't read Sally's handwriting, but she did try to help in the group project. So group works a little different in first grade because you need to make sure that everybody can read the writing. So we, we kind of use it to support um our presentations and learning. Well, I've been told when I go visit my two-year-old grandson here in a few weeks that uh, we're having a sword fight, but there will be paper swords. <laughs> nobody gets hurt, including grandpa in that case. I, I've heard many experts in education say that, you know, whether a student has third grade reading skills by the completion of the third grade, whether or not those are reading skills are at that level will have a, will be a major predictor of how that student will perform in school moving on. Uh, I would think that, you know, the start of, uh, that the start first grade teachers will provide in that reading skill means a whole lot in achieving that, that reading uh, efficiency or, or proficiency by the third grade. So my question to you, and because reading is part of, of the curriculum, is a very important part, not the only one, but a very important part. What do you look for when students finish the first grade in terms of their level of reading? Um, what do you like? What type of book? Or just just anything you want to say about it? Because I I just think that when I keep hearing that third grade level yes, being so important, yeah. you obviously want them to finish first grade with a certain ability to do certain things. So where, yes, do, where yeah. would you like your students to be when they finish um, first grade? By the end of first grade, we want them, you know, almost on a chapter book, but not on the chapter books you might think of when you think of a 
a beginner chapter book, that's going to be lots of pictures, still lots of words, but really the words are broken up with pictures, so half pictures on a page, um, but maybe some chapters in there. Um, and then when you think about second grade, I know my daughter's a second grader, so I'm looking for her when she's getting closer to end of second grade to be reading chapter books. Mm-hmm. And when you're in chapter books, you kind of go from first grade having simple characters like Elephant and Piggy to you're going to Jack and Annie chapter books, Magic Treehouse books in second grade that are a little bit more complex. So when in first grade, you're reading about simple characters, a simple setting. By second grade, you're reading about more complex characters. They have different personalities. Sometimes they're worried. Sometimes they're happy. They're kind of sometimes having conflicting personalities. They're trying to be nice, but they're also changing. Um, So you kind of think of the simplicity in the character development and plot all the way into the complexity of it. So by third grade, you're hoping they kind of understand how that all works, um, hopefully. Well, that's interesting because I keep hearing that, and that's really a good example you just gave as to how you look for your first graders and, of course, your second grade daughter, how she's finishing second grade where you would like her to be. Um, I want to move on to something else because I'd like to hear your view on this. I try to ask all the teachers of the year this. I've you know, interviewed several over the last few years. I'd like to ask you about how the state handles this whole issue of student testing and what what happens with those scores, because those test scores, how they're used, are often used to evaluate not just the student, but the teacher, the building, even the entire school district, and you roll those, those numbers up. And I've heard a lot about how testing should be used and maybe it shouldn't be used alone with other factors. I'm curious, as a teacher who's teacher of the year and been doing it for a while, what is the role of testing and doing all these different evaluations? I have a hard time with that. I mean, I don't know if I can accurately speak to it just because I'm a first grade teacher and our brave and amazing third grade and fourth grade teachers are going through that testing. And the one thing I know is for, for example, I read, we take it and we do get results back, but then they have to take summer school if they don't pass. Well, then as a teacher, you're feeling like a failure because you've gone through three quarters of the year trying to help this student. And then you get a test, you know, quarter three, that you only have quarter four to really help them, boost them, and then the summer to maybe boost them. So it doesn't feel as impactful as taking a test maybe at the beginning of the year and having that knowledge like we do with NWEA. Um, Explain what that is. Okay, so the NWEA is a normative test, which means that if you're taking it, I always tell my first grade students, the computer is really smart. So it's going to say, okay, answer this question. Larry, you answered that question really well. I'm going to give you a harder question now. Oh, you, that was a little hard. Let's go back down a little bit. So it's normative in the way that it finds out what skill level you need. And then it tells the teacher what skills you need to keep progressing. Hmm. Um, So for example, my class is a high ability first grade. And that means that some of the students, not all of the students, but some of the students have passed a high ability screener called the COGAT that um, tells us they have a high trajectory of learning in reading or math. And sometimes they're high ability in reading and sometimes they're high ability in math. And that tells us that 
I should be reaching them to their gaps that they need to be learning a second grade standard or a third grade standard or tells me what I need to do. So those type of normative tests like NWEA really help me as a teacher because I can say, okay, you know these first grade standards. Now here's how I push you. And this is how I can communicate that to parents. Whereas when you're taking I read. You're taking that in quarter th- at the end of quarter three. You're almost done with the year. And the same with then I learn, which I think is in May. Again, I can't accurately you know explain these because I don't give them. But sure. again, you're not getting that result. The, informa- the whole point of an assessment is to gain data that can improve your instruction. Um, and the only way we can use these, ki- it, to me, as a first grade teacher, it feels like last minute tests that are at the end of the year. The only way we can use them is to compare them across the year and kind of follow those students and say, okay, 38% failed, you know, and this year, let's see what happens in fourth grade. So to compare over across years, but it's still a very hard thing to kind of improve teaching on. And from what I've seen, just covering education for the last 11 years, and I I covered it many years ago before that, is that the state has a tendency to change the test. Yes. And when you change the test and the approach and everything, that changes what the teacher needs to do in the approach to make sure that these students are reaching a certain level of proficiency as measured in that test. Yeah, and I think that's something that teachers are constantly battling. We're trying to figure out what's the right way to teach and follow the data, but the data is always telling us something different because the test is different or um, the state wants something new. (laughs) We ask you this question. Uh, You've been in education for a while. You're teacher of the year. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing about education today, what would that be? I would want teachers to be trusted more. And I would want people that are not trusting us to see us more. Because if you think that we're the highest, HSE is the highest um, employer or has the most... The largest employer. Yes, in the, the largest Fisher, employer yeah. in Fishers. Um, there are thousands of us, you know, that are working so hard. And I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm on Twitter. A long time ago, I learned that I just, people didn't know the, the teacher's story. And the only people, my husband doesn't really always understand either. The only person that really understood in my family was my dad, who was an art, a high school art teacher. And so I just knew that I had to get on social media to tell my story because others weren't, or they were telling the wrong story. And so um, I just wish we were trusted more. If I had a magic wand, it doesn't even have to be money. I just want people to see us as the profession that we are, the professionals we are. I do remember, and I'm again, I'm older. I can remember society changing from being trustworthy of the educators moving away from that. And I never really quite understood why. I mean, there are a lot of reasons you could you could uh, say, but there's never been a real good study or, or, or conclusion as to why. Maybe it's just that all those rebellious students of the 1960s that I went through, once they became parents, <laughs> looked at life a different way. But uh, I would agree. I've been hearing the same thing from a lot of other teachers. And I, most of the teachers I know certainly do deserve to have that trust. So your magic wand would be that. <laughs> trust. That's, uh, that's a great answer. I'm going to ask you this question now. Just from what you're able to gauge, and again, if you're the teacher of the year, you hear from a lot of other teachers in, in that role. How would you describe the morale among teachers in the Hamilton Southeastern District right now? 
I think it's low. We're, I mean, it's just really hard. It's been. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from obviously one working so tirelessly for three years during this pandemic. Um, and you know, we, that first year in May, 2020, you got, some of us got that little parade from some of our students, but some of us didn't. Um, and we got that pat on the back. You're, you're all teacher of the year. And I think it was 2020. Um, and then we went into the division of communities and that division really was, it lost, it took away that, it gave mistrust to our profession. Even though we had spent countless hours giving videos during the pandemic and showing our teaching online, like my daughter was in some of my videos that year um, doing math videos and and you thought that you would have built trust with your videos only to have more mistrust and so much more mistrust that it feels like it's seeped into our school board. And so then that gives you a little bit less hope because you're like, do they know what I do? Does anyone know what we do? So it's just this kind of teetering of um, hope. We're just trying to find it. We're trying to figure out how to make it through and show that we are great at what we do. Because it goes back to your magic wand. Yes. Of, of just yeah. a matter of trust. One thing that I observed, I've been covering this school district for 11 years and seen lots of school board members come and go, a few administrators come and go. And I think when you look at COVID, what uh, struck me the most is it really didn't matter what decision the school board and the administration made. They were attacked. Yeah. You know, and, and it doesn't matter if, 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 they had, if it went one direction, one group of people would attack them. If they went to another yes. decision, another group of, of people would attack them. And I just felt uh, they were in a losing position, and the teachers – we're right in the middle of all that. Right. So then you, when you say morale's low, you're, you're really kind of referring to that, It felt you? like we're in a lose-lose position because we're always supposed to follow what the state tells us and follow what our admin tells us. So then when people come back and say teachers are bad or teachers just need to focus on the academics, it's like, did you not see what we did all these years? You know, so. Well, for the teacher, and I, again, I know a lot of teachers personally, family members. I've never met a teacher that didn't make academics number one. So mm -hmm. the idea that it's not right. is a foreign concept for me, but that's just my experience, and it has been yours yes, from what I'm sure. hearing. Um, I've tried to ask everything I could think to ask, so I'm going to give you a chance to just say anything you want to say here before we uh, finish this up. Um, what I want to say is that you know, with the teaching profession, we're always kind of locked in a box, whether it be um, standards-based learning or curric new curriculums or state-mandated testing. And one of the things I've really fought for, and and sometimes I worry that maybe I, I shouldn't have been teacher of the year, is that we are creative beings, teachers are, and we're resilient and um one of the things I told my principal the other day, I was like, I will do the new curriculum. We just got a new curriculum. But that feels a little bit to me like putting Audrey in a box. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I just got voted as teacher of the year. And I know I do good things because I think through it. I do a big curiosity fair. Like, um, and little kindergartners will come back 
past me and they're not even in my class and they're like, you're the scientist. And that's powerful to me because they see themselves or a girl as a scientist Mm -hmm. or I do a big project with Fancy Nancy and we talk about learning complex words and we say, you know, we we learned simple words in kindergarten, but now we need to understand complex words and dress up like that. And so the kids always remember trying to battle Fancy Nancy and know what words mean. Um, I do a big lawyer thing where with villains and so we we talk about which villains like Goldilocks or Giant um, from Jack and the Beanstalk deserve to be out of jail. And that's authentic and timeless. You know, timeless learning is what I'm all about. Um, curiosity is timeless for kids. You can say academics first all day, but when we figure out a timeless skill like curiosity or grit or um, critical thinking like they needed for those fairy tale lawyers, that's... That's what I'm all about as a educator. Chris, I'm sorry. I have to ask this follow-up question on that. So <laughs> is the new curriculum working for you? It's working. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's in defining working for me. It doesn't do what I want it to do. I want it to all connect. So when we do fairy tale lawyers, we're connecting writing. So we're writing opinion pieces and we're reading from different points of view. And then we connect those by writing a lawyer speech that is opinionated. So that persuasive writing, but also takes evidence from texts. Um, So when learning can be all connected, that's when I'm the happiest because... When you describe that and and you're a first grade teacher (laughs) doing all that... That's what's amazing to me. Well, Audrey Lash is, again, a first-grade teacher here at New Britain Elementary. She is the Teacher of the Year for the academic school year about to end, 2022 to 2023. So, Audrey, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for giving me a voice. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you'd like to comment on my blog, please do so with any suggestions. In the meantime... Please be safe and be kind.